right, Genesis 15. If you want to know something of the inward battle believers face, a good idea would be to read the Psalms. You see that all over the Psalms. Uh, you're going to read there of men who trust the Lord. They're trusting the Lord, yet at the same time, they're struggling to make sense of what's going on in their lives. They're struggling to make sense of what's going on in the privacy of their own hearts. And so you'll read those writers of Psalms, and they're asking themselves questions such as, uh, why are you disquieted within me, O my soul? Uh, Lord, how long will you hide your faith from me? Uh, why are you in despair, O my soul? Things like that you read. And uh, you see that inward battle. But you also hear them say to themselves things like this, hope in God, for he is your strength and your salvation. So you can see the struggle back and forth like that. Isn't that how it is, though? If we're honest with ourselves, you know in your own heart how this goes. That's how it is. And uh, the good news is the Lord knows and understands the struggles that we have in our faith. He understands these things. He stands ready to reassure us when we're struggling. We all have, you know, as Pilgrim's Progress called it, called it fainting hearts. We all have these fainting hearts, and God needs to reassure us again and again. In this chapter, chapter 15, the Lord's going to give reassurance to Abram in the inward struggles of his heart, because believe it or not, this great man of faith is struggling in his faith. He struggles. He has inward battles just like all of us do. And so I say he's going to reassure him. I use the word reassurance because I think it's the best word because it's something that seems that God is constantly doing for us, constantly reassuring us. We need constant reassurance every day. So over the next few weeks, we're going to we're going to find the Lord reassuring Abram in two ways. First of all, through his word. Secondly, through his covenant. And I've got, I think, uh, the notes on the table out there if you didn't get them. Start with Lord's, the Lord's reassuring word. The Lord's reassuring word. Abram needs reassurance, so do we. First of all, in light of our fears. In light of our fears, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward, your reward shall be very great. He says, after these things, after what things? I think it's after the events of chapter 14. You remember the chapter on the battling kings a couple weeks ago? We talked about those guys fighting each other, uh, kings that are fighting each other. Four kings from the east, five kings from the west. The, five, the four kings from the east, now present-day Iraq and Iran, fighting the five kings from the east around the, the area of the Dead Sea. And the eastern kings routed the western kings. They, they came after them, and they just defeated them. They took away many captives. They took away the spoils of war. Most of all, they captured Lot, the nephew of Abram. Well, when Abram heard that, that's what really triggered him. When he heard that his nephew was taken, he promptly set out on a rescue mission with his uh, men, his allies, and they made a trek of some 150 miles before it was all said and done in order to get these guys to go after the kings from the east, they slaughter them, Hebrews tells us, and they return in victory. They were met by two kings when they came back. Well, Abram was, first of all, the king of Salem. That's in the bottom of chapter 14. And that is Melchizedek. And we talked about that mysterious character. Also, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, Melchizedek blessed Abram. The king of Sodom only strike, sought to strike a deal with Abram. And he said, hey, you give me the uh, captives, return the captives to me, I'll give you the spoils of war. And Abram said, no deal. <laughs> my allegiance is not to you, king of Sodom. My allegiance is to the king of kings, the lord of lords, the possessor of heaven and earth. 
I'm not taking anything from you at all lest you say that you contributed to me somehow, that you made me rich, that you, would, that you helped me out. And so, no deal. Uh, Genesis 14, although it's an obscure event, could take place in mil- its place in military history because think of all the elements that are involved there. There's an underdog going up against undefeated kings. That's Abram's the underdog. Uh, the, uh, the kings had won every battle they went out to, to, to complete, compete in, and now Abram wins. There's also a daring rescue that takes place. Abram travels all this way to rescue these guys. And uh, there's an unexpected victory by the world standards. This is unexpected. The end result, Abram could be on a spiritual high. You can imagine, wow, look at this victory that was just accomplished. How great is this? But then you read those words in chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. Now, why is Abram afraid? He seemed to be fearless in the battle, didn't he? In chapter 14, he didn't hesitate to go after those guys from the east, those undefeated kings from the east. He won the battle convincingly, no doubt about it, yet the Lord now says to him, do not fear Abram. So why is he afraid? Well, there's several suggestions as to why he's afraid. Some people say that he's afraid of retaliation by the kings from the east. Because once they retool and they re-up and they reinforce and they get, their, they get it together and they may come back with a vengeance and seek retaliation against Abram, Therefore, he's afraid, some think. And that could well be part of the reason. Maybe he is. Uh, Some people say he's afraid because the Lord appeared to him in a vision. The idea being that it's more fearful to see the Lord in a vision than it is to face your enemy in battle. And I can understand that. This is the Lord we're talking about here. But it seems to me in the context, he's primarily afraid because he he doesn't have his own child. He's afraid he might not have his own child, it, it looks like, in this chapter. You'll see this as we go through it. The bottom line is, whatever the reason, he's afraid. This is Abram we're talking about. I'm not talking about some guy, some guy on, the, on the road out there. We're talking about Abram. Uh, and it goes to show you that even the greatest saints of the Bible have to face fear, even the greatest of them. Think of the Apostle Paul. Well, we think of Paul, of Paul as being fearless, right? He's the great apostle. Uh, but even he battled fear at times. You might be surprised to hear that. At least three occasions in the New Testament, the Lord has to reassure Paul because this bold apostle, this fearless apostle, is afraid. I like, eight, I like Acts 18.9. I've always loved, loved Acts 18.9. Uh, Paul's in Corinth, and the Lord says to him in, night, in the night by a vision, same thing as we have in Genesis 15. He says to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking, keep on preaching, don't be silent, For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. In other words, I deduce from that, Paul was afraid. He was afraid people were coming after him. We always think he's out there, he doesn't care about any of this, but he does care. There was times when he used his Roman citizenship (laughs) as a weapon (laughs) against these kind of things. But he's afraid, and God says, don't fear, I'm with you, Paul. The great apostle Paul. Now, if, if Abram and Paul experience fear, I, I, I should not be surprised if I experience fear. It shouldn't surprise me at all. And neither should you. It's something that we all have to deal with. But the word of the Lord, here's the key. The word of the Lord is always there to reassure us, to strengthen us in our faith. That's what I want you to see tonight. Now, in the Old Testament, people 
prophets, usually prophets, sometimes received a vision from the Lord. In fact, later on we're going to see Abram was a prophet. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, those guys in the Old Testament like Abram spoke to the fathers, in the, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, he spoke through visions, he spoke through dreams, just like he did with Abram. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Now today, of course, we have completed revelation. So no one here should say, well, I had a vision. I had a vision of God. Hopefully nobody in this church is going to say that. I pray nobody in this church says that. The only vision you should have is the one in your eyes, or in your eyes when you're reading the word of God itself. Use that vision. And if we did that more often, we'd have more assurance. So the Lord gives Abram his word of assurance. Do not, be, do not fear Abram. That's comforting in itself, isn't it? Just to hear those words from the Lord. Do not fear Abram. It's the kind of thing an earthly father would say to his child. If the child suddenly panicked over something, he would say, son or daughter, do not be afraid. I'm here with you. It's going to be okay. All of us have done that. I see it with the grandchildren all the time. I see them getting afraid of something, and they run to their parents for reassurance, and the parents reassure them, it's going to be okay. Hold them and all that, and that's how it is. What child isn't comforted by a reassuring word from his father or mother? And, I, and what child of God isn't reassured from the words of God that comfort him in, in, his holy, in, 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 the, in, the word, in the word of God? We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. Now, it's easy for me to say we don't have to fear, but we don't have to fear, the scripture says. The only one we have to fear is the Lord himself. Think about that for a minute. He's in, in the sense of reverencing him, worshiping him. But then the Lord adds these words in verse 1, I am a shield to you, Abram, a shield. That's a word, a, a word picture for divine protection. God will protect Abram. Abram's God's man. He's the one that's chosen. He's going to protect him. He's, uh, he's going to keep him from his enemies. He has to worry about those kings from the east or anything else. You see that elsewhere in the scripture. Psalm chapter 3, again, you see it all through, through the Psalms. Psalm 3, David and his says his adversaries are increasing against him. They're rising up against him. They're saying there's no uh, way that God's going to deliver him from us. He's not going to, he doesn't stand a chance. God's not going to help him. God's not going to defend him. What does David say? He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield to me. Same word. You're a shield to me, which is such a beautiful word picture, that the Lord is our shield. The Lord himself is our shield, our protector in all kinds of circumstances. Then Abram is promised a reward in verse 1. It says, God says, your reward shall be very great. Now, is the Lord speaking of monetary reward? I don't think so, because Abram's rich. He doesn't need anything else. He's fine that way materially. I think he's got something much greater in mind. I think a hint of this is Psalm 127.3. This is debated, but I believe in the context this is, this is the reward. Psalm 127.3, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Same word used here. It's the fruit of the womb that's a reward. That's what we're going to talk about in this chapter. I think children are the reward here. But these words from the Lord are certainly reassuring to Abram, who is apparently afraid at this time. Now, we all have fears, all of us. Fears that are real, that we actually face. Fears that we imagine. You know, you, you know how we do this, right? We start contemplating, the night, maybe the next day at work or whatever. The night before, you're trying to sleep, and you're thinking, oh, i got to meet that guy. i got to do that job. 
I'm worried that things aren't going to work out like I want to, and there's a problem here, and I've got to deal with it, and you start thinking about all these things, and then they, you blow it up in your mind and exaggerate it, and then you're petrified. That's easy to do. And we all face fears, fears of all kinds. And, uh, and, and, and whatever endeavor you are in life, everybody here faces some kind of fear. But the Word of God, I want you to understand tonight, that's able to calm our spirits. It's able to relieve our fears. But we also need assurance from God's Word in another area, and that is in light of our doubts. Not only our fears, but in light of our doubts. That's in verses 2 to 6. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, since you, are, since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. <clears> then <throat> behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this, word, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, reckoned it to him as righteousness. You can see, as you read these verses, you can see what Abram's real concern is. He's childless. That's what he says. He keeps emphasizing this. Now, it's interesting. In this discussion of Abram's childlessness, he still recognizes something very important. This is something we lose sight of often in our difficulties, our doubts. He recognizes that the Lord is sovereign. Verse 2, he, he calls him Lord God. Says it again in verse 8. Lord God. That means sovereign Lord. That's what it means. It means Abram knows who's in charge. He knows who the master is, God. He knows he's a servant. Abram knows all about servants and masters. He's got 318 of them in chapter 14. It talks about he's the master. They're the servants. He knows all about this. Eliezer is mentioned here. That's his servant, his prized servant. Abram's his master. In the same way, Abram understands the hierarchy between him and God. God is the sovereign one, he's the underling, God's in charge, that's something we all need to understand. That's very helpful if we all understood that. But even with that knowledge, God is sovereign over all things. God's sovereign, he's in charge, he's the one who's in charge. Even with that knowledge, you can see the doubts that creep into his mind. So he says in verse 2, what will you give me, Lord, since I am literally, I am it says, I am childless. I am going childless, and I keep going childless. That's what he's saying here. I'm, I continue to go childless, Lord. It's not just that Abram is childless. There seems to be no end in sight to this dilemma. That's what he's thinking. This word childless, is trans, is, uh, I think it's used in four verses in the Old Testament. Every other time it's used, it's due to divine judgment. Somebody's under the divine judgment of God, and therefore they're going to be childless. But Abram is not being judged with childlessness. He may think he is, but he's not. In verse 3, he says, You have given no offspring to me. Other people have offspring. They have children. I certainly don't. None's been given to me. That's what he says. Actually, the Hebrew text puts emphasis on the words to me. It says this, literally, Behold, to me, no offspring has been given. As if Abram wanted to make sure the Lord understood, We're talking about me here. <laughs> I, I don't, you remember, I don't have any children, right? I'm childless. He says, in effect, I continue in a childless state. And sovereign Lord, I'm still waiting for you to give children to me. Still waiting. Now, Abram knows that the Lord is sovereign even in childbirth. That's interesting, isn't it? With all this going on, he knows who is sovereign in childbirth. He knows that, but he says, where's my child? 
Abram doesn't even say, you've given me no son. He says, you've given me no child, no offspring. At this point, for Abram, a child of any sex would do. Back in the ancient world, they're looking for a son oftentimes. He's thinking, he's saying, I'll take any, whatever child you give me, I'll be happy with. By the way, in case you have somehow gotten confused with the conversation going on in our country about gender, let me remind you, there's only two genders, male and female. That's as true, that was true in the ancient world, and it's true also now, in case you ever get confused. By the way, I'm here to remind you periodically about this. Apparently, people don't seem to understand. Apparently, people have lost their minds. Mike talked about the looting influence this morning. Okay, I'll stop with that. Okay, I'll try to get off that because that stuff drives me insane. Notice these two statements together, verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? What are you going to give me since I'm childless? Verse 3, to me you have given no offspring. What's taking so long? The problem is Abram's focus on the clock. He's, time is passing, still no child. Sometimes we're, we're like that. We're not content with the Lord's timing. Well, I got a problem with that. I'll, <laughs> we have a schedule to keep, don't we? We have a commitments. We have deadlines to meet. I've got a plane to catch. I've got an appointment. You know, doesn't the Lord know about my plans? I have a schedule to keep. I'm a busy man here. I've got a, I've got a calendar. I've marked the important dates in the calendar. If only the Lord would check with me on the timing of events, then I'd be happy. That's what we think. Here's the thing, though. The Lord has his own schedule. He has his own calendar. He has his own planner. He knows the beginning from the end. He has eternity all figured out. And the problem is we're not on his timetable. We're on ours. I've got, it. I've got things to do. Why doesn't the Lord understand my timetable here? The truth is, he's the only one in the universe who knows best when it comes to timing and the timing of events and, and why he does things in a, ter- a certain time zone, his time zone. Why do you do things like this? And I wrestle with this issue. I really do. And I ask the Lord, when are you going to do something about this? I don't mean it irreverently. When are you going to do something about my situation? I'm facing you right here. I'm facing a situation. It's been going on, ongoing for a good while here. It still exists. When are you going to intervene? Not soon enough for me, apparently. What's wrong with that? I need to submit to his timing. And that's not something easy for me to do, I'll be honest with you. It's not, it may not be easy for you also. It certainly wasn't easy for Abram, apparently, according to what he says here. But Abram does have a backup plan. It's always good to have a backup plan. Are you, do you always have a backup plan? I try to get in my head now. If this doesn't work, i got plan B coming into play here. Plan C even, maybe. The Lord, uh, Abram says in verse 2, Sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I am going childless? Remember, I keep going childless. And the heir of my house, the heir of my house, literally, the son of the inheritance. It's a difficult phrase. Son of the inheritance, the son of the estate, possibly something like that. The son of something. Like I say, people wrestle with this. (laughs) He's talking about Eliezer. The son of the inheritance is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, there was apparently a custom back in those days that if you didn't have a biological son, well, you gave your inheritance to your most trusted servant. I don't have a son, so I'll give it to this guy. And the Bible also makes room for that idea. Proverbs 17:2, a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. And he's going to share in the inheritance among brothers. The servant's going to share in the inheritance, it says. 
As far as Abram was concerned, Eliezer fit that bill. He's the son. It says that literally. He's the son of the inheritance. It doesn't say it in your English translation. Now, Eliezer had become a highly valued servant, and he speaks so well of him that he says, uh, he's, he's going to be my heir. This guy, Eliezer, is going to be my heir. Uh, I don't have my own biological son, so Eliezer is the next best thing. I don't have a son, so the son of the inheritance is the one who's going to get it all. And then after Abram proposes this alternative to God's original plan, this is the backup plan, the Lord responds in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Again. <laughs> That's what it says in verse 1. Again with the word. It says the word of the Lord came to Abram in verse 1 also. I heard somebody say one time, That's all you ever tell us to do is read the Bible. Well, I've got that from a reliable source. And I, I can tell you this much, the word of God always has the answer to your heart problems, fear, doubt, whatever it is. Where do you go? The word of God has the problem. So I'd advise you to return to it again and again. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he, he's going to be your heir. The Lord says, No, Abram, the heir is, not, is, is, going, to be, is going to be your own biological son, not an outsider. He doesn't even name the servant here in verse 4. He doesn't say, oh, Elias, Eliezer, that guy you're talking about, Eliezer of Damascus, he's not going to be your heir. He says, what does it say in verse 4? This man will not be your heir. That's what he calls him. Now, does, this, does the Lord not know that who Eliezer is? Is he not aware of this servant? Is he not know, aware of all 318 servants? Now, he knows who he is, and you can tell that by his adamant opposition to him, to Eliezer being the heir. It's not that Eliezer is a bad guy, by the way. He's a good guy. Abram loves this guy. It's just that the Lord is so set on his promise for Abram to have his own son. He's not going to allow any intruder into this realm at all. This is, I promise you, offspring. It's going to happen. Now we read all this and we have to ask ourselves the question, is Abram a man of faith? Yes, he is a man of faith. But these are the kind of thoughts people of faith have. Don't, don't tell me you don't have these thoughts. They struggle inwardly. Does that sound familiar? Is that your heart? I, 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 we shouldn't be double-minded people, James chapter 1. But we do struggle with these things. And Calvin has got this unbelievably great statement. You know what this guy Calvin, by the way, can I say something about him? He's brilliant. Truly brilliant. I'm not saying I agree with everything he said, but 500 years ago, we're still quoting this guy. What is this insightful statement? Calvin says, The Lord sometimes concedes to his children that they may freely express any objection which comes to their mind, for he does not act so strictly with them as not to allow himself to be questioned. Now, the Lord is merciful to our doubts and fears. Now, Calvin doesn't mean that, you know, it's okay to approach the sovereign Lord with a, you know, a, a, an irreverent attitude, shaking your fist in his face and acting like an atheist and, and all that. He's not saying that. Abram doesn't do that. He approaches the Lord with proper reverence. But he also airs his frustrations to the Lord over his circumstances. Isn't that what the writers of the Psalms do? They do the same thing. They air their complaint before the Lord, yet with the realization at the same time, they realize that God is sovereign. They don't understand everything in the Psalms. They don't get it all. They understand God's in, in charge. The Lord, does, he does want us to unburden our hearts to him. He does want that. All our anxieties and fears and frustrations and doubts, he wants you to air those things to him. Yes, he does. The scripture says, cast your burden upon the Lord. Cast your cares upon the Lord. He'll sustain you, it says. 
Now, if Abram did not actually believe the Lord's promises, if he didn't care about what the Lord had already promised him before chapter 15, he would not have brought this up to the Lord's, he would not have brought it to his attention. He does care, and it shows his heart of faith, even though he's plagued by certain doubts and fears. The, the true believers at war with these things, aren't we? We're at war with these things. We're in a spiritual battle. We shouldn't be surprised to see this battle taking place in Abram's heart. Kind of like Elijah. He's a man of like nature as we are. We should not be surprised. Why do you think the Apostle Paul, like a general who's giving orders, says in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God? And then in Ephesians 6.16, he says, you should take up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish the flaming arrows, the fiery darts of the evil one. You should do that. Because Satan takes aim at believers. He pulls back his bow and fires the flaming arrows of doubt and fear at their heart. That's what he does to us. And the only way, the only way to put out those flaming arrows is by reassuring ourselves with the truth of the word of God. That's the only way. We've got to do it. And, and uh, we should believe his promises. We hear all, these, all this stuff all the time. We tell ourselves a bunch of things that are not even true. Satan tells us lies. We hear lies all the time. Believe God's promises rather than the devil's lies. So important to saturate ourselves with the truth of the word of God. I'm telling you, this is not just something we repeat all the time just because we, we have nothing else to say. It's very important. Look at verse 5. It says, And God took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Again, the reassurance. Now the Lord gives... Abram, an object lesson from creation itself, which we also read about in the Word of God. In this vision, he takes Abram outside, and he says, look in the stars and count them. And that tells us that the vision was at night. Now, it's estimated that there are between 100 billion and 400 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And then if you look at the universe in general, they estimate at least, nobody knows this, 10 billion billion, whatever that means. It's kind of like our government. One of those figures they throw out. Oh, we owe 10 billion billion. Nobody knows what they're talking about even. But they don't care, do they? But I'll, I'll try to stay off politics, all right? A lot of axes to grind with politicians. It's a lot of stars they have. Was Abram able to physically count each one? That would be impossible. The point is here that Abram can trust God's promise. He's going to have offspring. They're going to be numerous. The God who had the power to create all those stars certainly has the ability to stand behind his promise and fulfill his word to Abram. Look at Genesis 3.16. The Lord tells Abram over there in that chapter, remember when we covered Genesis 13, he says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Now he compares them to the stars. What, what great comparisons, dust and stars. How do you even number dust? Abram has no children yet, not yet, but he most certainly will. How do we know this? The Word of God reassures him that's going to happen. That's all we need to know. That's all we need is the Word of God. Now, how does Abram respond to this word from the Lord, this illustration from creation that God spoke the world into existence? By the way, Hebrews 11.3, the Word of God. By faith, we understand that the worlds, the stars included, were framed. They were prepared by the Word of God. Prepared by the Word of God. How does Abram respond to this reassuring word from God? Look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, it says. Genesis 15, 6. One of those bedrock verses in the Bible. 
Uh, it's the foundational verse to the doctrine of justification. So impactful is this verse. It's repeated in three contexts in the New Testament. Romans 4, Galatians 3, James chapter 2. And as often, and by the way, a lot of people think this is only a New Testament doctrine, but as often as the case, what is talked about, what is talked about in the New Testament started, got its start in the Old Testament. This is no different here. In the New Testament, then the New Testament takes that doctrine and explains it, expands upon it, applies it, and all that stuff. So let's break this verse 6 down. With, I'm going to ask some questions of this verse about as we consider Abram's justification. First question. When was Abram justified? When was he, was he justified? As I was going through Abram's life back in chapter 13, 12, 12 13, so on, I was thinking, you know, um, wow, when was Abram justified? Now, you may have not considered this before, but bear with me for a minute. Was it here in Genesis 15, 6 that he was justified? Or was it before this? Well, it seems pretty obvious that Genesis 15, 6 is when he's justified. That's what it says here, right? So why am I asking this question? Well, there's a few reasons why. First of all, because Abram exercised faith prior to Genesis 15, 6. He did. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord calls him to go out, leave his homeland, travel several hundred miles. He winds up in Canaan. Uh, and the Lord says, this is going to be, uh, you're, your descendants are going to possess this land. Do you think that took faith? To do all that? I know it does because Hebrews 11.8 says, by faith, by faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place, we talked about Hebrews 11.8, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, not to mention there's a little rhyme there. We refer to that incident as the obedience of faith. Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abram went out. So faith in what? Faith in whom? Hebrews 11 is a chapter about faith in God. Abram was putting his faith in God in Genesis chapter 12. And so the question arises, how could he have exercised faith in God in Genesis 12 if he was not justified by faith until Genesis 15? So I asked the question, when was he justified? Well, that's a good thing. That's something we need to consider. Secondly, I asked this question because of the Hebrew grammar of, Hebrews, of, of Genesis 15, 6. The grammar itself. Now, I'm going to keep this non-technical Big discussion about this phrase. The first word of Genesis 15, 6 is translated then, the Nazbi, which makes it seem like the rest of this verse is a result of what's gone before this, a result. Now, it's in the context, yes, but is it the result of what just happened in verse 5? I think it's more accurate, based on what my understanding of this, to translate the word then as now. Now, Abram, or something to that effect. But let me go on from that and add this. The word believed here which is connected in Hebrew to the word then or now, the conjunction is connected together. The word believed, the form here, let me just tell you something, the grammar here is unusual. It's not what you would expect, it's not typical, it's unusual, we'll just say that, we'll say it that way. So what is being stressed here is the permanence of Abram's attitude, the permanence of it. This man has, has been a man of faith for a good while now. Now I'm going to quote some Hebrew scholars, some guys who know their stuff, Really good. I just kicked a bucket down there, I think. <laughs> or maybe it's an offering plate or something. Maybe we could take an offering right now. <laughs> maybe this is not a good time to take an offering. I'm going to quote some guys because I, need some, I want some backup so you can see what I'm saying here. 
And I've got this in your notes. You can read these quotes. A guy named Loophole, an older, older commentator, about this verse says, Abram did not just believe this one time, but he proved constant in his faith. This has been going on for some time now, Loophole tells us. Thomas Constable gives a big, long explanation as to the Hebrew behind this, which is a really good explanation. And then he says this. It's best to translate this as, now Abram had believed. Now Abram had believed. He's been believing. Ken Matthews, my favorite guy, says this. The point of the author, Genesis 15, 6, is that Abram continued to believe in the Lord. He continued to believe in the Lord. Recognition of Abram's faith at this point in the story should not be taken as the initiation of his faith. It's an ongoing faith repeated from the past. Gordon Wenham, Dr. Martin's guy, that he knows at least. <laughs> Gordon Wenham says, faith was Abram's normal response to the Lord's words. I mean, this is how he always responded. It's not the first time he did it. He typically responds this way. Ralph Davis, another guy. The form of the word shows us it should be, the form of the verb shows us it should be translated something like he had believed, or better, he remained firm. He remained firm in his belief in the Lord. And that's how he says it. Victor Hamilton, another guy. Of course, this is not the first time Abram has put his trust in Yahweh's word. It's not the first time. He's been believing. And then the guys from the past, Martin Luther said, Martin Luther questioned when he got to Genesis 15, is this, is this when Abram was justified? Uh, he says he was justified long before this, but that, that, listen to this. Luther says, why is it recorded here in Genesis 15? It's, it's first recorded in this context in a connection where the Savior is definitely involved in order that none might venture to disassociate justification from the Savior. It's here that none might uh, venture to disassociate justification from the Savior. In other words, justification is associated with the Savior. And he wants us to see that in Genesis 15, 6. Because obviously, the Lord is the one who saves us. He's just the one who justifies us. John Calvin thought it was, uh, thought that it, it, it was uh, mentioned here long after Abram was first justified to show, that, to show that justification is by faith and faith alone apart from works from start to finish. Wasn't just justified, you know, we, we talk about when were you saved? Well, I was saved when I was 10. As if we're not saved now. That's not the case. We're saved from start to finish by faith. And Charles Spurgeon says this in his sermon he preached. He said, I take it, beloved friends, that our text, Genesis 15, 6, does not intend to teach us that Abram was not justified before this time. Faith always justifies wherever, whenever it exists. And as soon as it is exercised, Genesis 12, it, its result its result follows immediately and is not an aftergrowth needing months of delay. So I personally believe that with many others and, and many more than that, Abram was justified before Genesis 15. This is a summary statement of the faith he's always had. And you may have to think about that. You have to go home and think about that and look through it and, and think about that. I, I know this is maybe the first time you've heard this. I'm not trying to present a new doctrine. By the way, we're not talking about the fact that he, of whether he was justified. We're talking about when he was justified, so we don't need to split the church over it, all right? Secondly, how was Abram justified? How was he justified? This is the first time believe is used in the scripture. We get our word amen from this Hebrew word as if Abram's saying amen to God himself. The basic meaning here meaning to place trust in someone with confidence, 
got confident trust in God. It expresses that state of mind which is sure of its object and relies firmly upon it. I'm sure of you, Lord. I'm sure of your justification. I'm sure of all you are, Abram says. And whom did Abram believe? Look at verse 15. I love this, the way it's phrased here, by the way. It says he believed in the Lord. That's, what it's, that's how it puts it. The object of faith is the Lord himself. Abram knew he could fully trust in the Lord, and he did. It reminded me of when I read that, Acts 16.31, where Paul told the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Abram's justification is by faith, not by works, is the point. Romans 4.2, Paul says, If Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about before God. Remember Ephesians 2.8? Uh, we don't want to brag about, we don't want to boast about our salvation. So God did it all. So we, don't, we can't boast about it. Paul says about Abraham, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about before God. But he can't brag because this, what does the scripture say? Abram believed God. It was by faith. It was credited to him by, for, as righteousness. Paul's simply trying to prove justifications by faith there, not by works. Abram's salvation was not by the works of the law because Abram was before the law. Wasn't because he obeyed God's call to leave Ur. That's not why he was justified. It wasn't because he risked his life to save his nephew, Lot, in the, in the battle. He wasn't justified because uh, of, of, he gave 10% of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. He's saved by faith, just like the rest of us. Galatians 3, 7 Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's by faith and faith alone that we're justified in God's sight. Third question, what does it mean to be justified? Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. <clears throat> this is the first time the words reckon and righteousness are used in the Bible. Uh, and as they are, reckon here meaning to count something, to impute something, to credit something to somebody. The Lord credited his his righteousness, God's righteousness to Abram's account. And that's quoted again in Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2. It means, the term means, reckon here, means to assign value to something. To assign value to something. In this case, the Lord assigns value, aligns, uh, I'm sorry, he assigns faith the value of righteousness. Abraham is not doing anything to achieve his salvation. He didn't do anything to do it. Rather, the Lord credits him with his righteousness. And this word righteousness has to do with behavior that conforms to a standard. What standard? God's standards. Behavior that conforms to God's standard. So the person whose behavior conforms to God's standard is in right standing with God. Who can conform to God's standard? Nobody on their own. Abram couldn't do it. He's a sinner. Remember, he was a pagan idolater. So the Lord has to declare him righteous. There's no other way. He has to save him by grace, by faith. I know I'm throwing out a lot of doctrine tonight, but just bear with me. The theological doctrine of justification is defined this way by Wayne Grudem. You can see all kinds of definitions, but justification is an instantaneous legal act of God when he thinks of our sins as forgiven. God thinks of our sins as forgiven, and Christ's righteousness is belonging to us, and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is all the work of God by faith. Now, Martin Luther, a leader in the Reformation, he was in agony for a long time because he was trying to attain the righteousness of God on his own merit. He did all kinds of stuff to do that. Buffeted his body, did all kinds of things. 
But he couldn't do it. He realized this is an impossible thing to do. But the light finally dawned on Martin Luther, and he realized what I need is an alien righteousness, he called it, an alien righteousness. In other words, a righteousness outside of myself. And that righteousness outside of himself was in Christ alone. And he came to Christ by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And fourth question, are we justified in the same way Abram was? Is there a difference the way we're justified now and back in the Old Testament? Yes, we are justified just like Abram was. There's no difference. There's only one way of salvation, of justification throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. That's by faith. No other way. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification was never by works in the Old Testament. Never was. Galatians 3.8. I got those scriptures in your notes. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, this is back in Genesis 12, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. They're going to be blessed in you, Abram. Abram, uh, the, he would, Abram had to trust in the one who would come through his line, Christ. Have you been justified by faith in Christ tonight? Have you been justified? Ask yourself that question tonight. Have I been justified by faith in Christ? Have I been declared righteous by faith in Christ? Do I know the Lord? If so, the Lord has credited his righteousness to your account. And we could never achieve this on our own. And that means you're his child. That means you don't have to fear tonight, as Abram didn't have to. I know the world's a scary place. It really is. Scary place, crazy place, getting crazier every day, it seems like. We find ourselves facing fears of all kinds, but know that the Lord is there with you. His word is there to reassure you in Christ. Are you battling doubts tonight? Then know that the antidote for that is the sure and certain word of God, the truth, the word of God. Allow that word to reassure you, strengthen your faith. Don't miss a day. You, don't, you can't miss a day of this. Every single day, come to God's word and allow that word to strengthen you in your faith. Immerse yourself in the truth, and God will reassure you. We'll pick this up again next week, or not in two weeks. I won't be here next week. Let me just say this. We're going to be out of town for a week. A uh, Abram. I was going to say Abram is going to preach next week. Isn't that great? Abraham's going to preach next week. That's going to be the best, right? Abraham is not going to be here, unfortunately. He's got a prior commitment. Uh, Wendell's going to preach next week. It's the second best guy we can get after Abram. Wendell's going to preach next Sunday night, and I, want you to, I really want you to be here. I'm saying this because I want you to encourage you to, to get here to encourage him, support him. Uh, you know, we've got to train guys for the future here too. So pray for Wendell and be here for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful again for your word tonight, uh, knowing that it does reassure us in, in our hour of need, knowing how we are, knowing what our makeup is, knowing how we think. Lord, we're grateful that we can come to you to be strengthened, to be comforted by your word. Uh, and we pray this week and, and, and the weeks to follow, Lord, that we'll look to you, look to your word for that strength so we can serve you as we should. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.